All right, let's have a think about this text. Lord God, and I'll just ask God to help us understand and think. Lord Jesus, um, from wherever we are in our spiritual journeys and our emotional or relational journeys, whatever this morning's been like, help us now to, to think and listen well. Um, amen. Uh, the big idea in this genealogy, which is just full of names, uh, it's setting us up to understand Jesus... And in understanding Jesus, it's setting us up to understand an extraordinary truth that's at the heart of Christianity that we often miss. And the extraordinary truth is this. Christianity, at its heart, is a religion of uh, pens that don't... Hang on a moment. Just got to sink the old Apple pencil. Christianity, at its heart, is... uh, Here we go. A religion of radical grace. Of, and by radical, let's go to the old Latin radix, the root behind that. It's, 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 it's grace that goes right to the very heart of things, the root of things. The very core of Christianity is grace. Is God treating us in ways that we need, not in ways that we deserve. It's God's absolutely lavish, unconditional, extraordinary embrace of people like you and like me and anyone who wants to come to him. And this text, even though you might not see it, I'm going to try and show you why it is where we get that from. And I want to help you see why this is so important and so revolutionary in our lives and as we think about how women and men relate to each other. This is, after all, our series, God, Women, and the Healing of Humanity. And um, uh, so we're going to think about that. And the first thing we want to say is why this is is all about radical grace is because uh, in this little genealogy, we discover the four women pop up, don't they? You might not have noticed this, but uh, let me highlight them. Who's the first one? Who's the first woman we discover in this genealogy? Whose mother was Tamar. Now, who was Tamar? Well, if go and do some reading after church, Genesis chapter 38 tells us the story of uh, Tamar. Uh, Tamar was uh, a Canaanite, and her father-in-law, Judah, was, was the brother of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat? So in the chapter immediately before chapter 38, Joseph's brother Judah had just organized to sell Joseph off into slavery. And then Judah uh, moves into the territory of uh, the Canaanites and um, he marries and he has a couple of sons one of whose son's name is Ur, and he goes and finds a wife for Ur, and Tamar is Ur's wife. Ur is, a, is an Israelite, and he is so evil, the text says, that God strikes him down. He's such a seriously evil person that God kills him. So now um, Tamar is a widow, and she's a Canaanite widow married into this Jewish family. Part of the law at the time, because demographics were destiny, and you had to reproduce to ensure the survival of your village and your clan, you really needed men to be workers and fighters to ensure your survival. So part of the rule of the day was, if a brother died and the, his wife was left childless, 
the, the other brother had to conceive with the wife to reproduce and carry on the family line. So Ur's brother was a guy called Onan, and Onan had the job to impregnate Tamar so that she could have a child. Uh, the text says Onan decides he doesn't want to do this, so every time they have sex, he spills his semen on the ground. So uh, that's what the text says, and this is a, a, just, just as an aside, so you know this. Um, uh, one of the names, the, 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 the way masturbation was referred to historically, particularly in Victorian England, was called Onanism. Um, now, uh, it's clearly that's a, that's a great example of how you need the context of Scripture to make sense of Scripture, because it's clearly not on, onanism, it's, uh, it's birth control, motivated by the selfishness of onan and the desire not to have a child with his brother's wife, because then the child wouldn't be his, the child would belong to his brother, he would lose out on his inheritance. So because he's greedy, he practices family planning, and he misuses Tamar. One of the reasons this definitely isn't about masturbation is because the very next verse, God looks at what Onan does and says, it's so evil, he's treating her so badly that he strikes him dead. Now, if that was God's view on masturbation, (laughs) yeah, I won't say any more. So then what happens is, so, so poor old Judah, who's an evil guy, sold his brother into slavery. Uh, he's trying to organize, so he's, both his sons have died. So he then says to Tamar, come live with me, it'll all be okay. I've got another son. He's only a little fella, Shelah, uh, but don't worry, when he grows up, you can marry him and all will be okay. So what happens is then Judah's wife dies, Shelah grows up, and Tamar goes, huh, He's reneging on his word. I'm not going to get a child out of this. And if you don't have, remember I've said this before, in, in the ancient world, if you don't have a child as a woman, you're nothing and nobody, right? Because demographics, destiny. So uh, Judah goes on a business trip and Tamar goes, ah, oh, here's my opportunity. So she takes off her widow's clothes um, and she dresses like a prostitute. She waits on the side of the road for Judah to come home. Judah's on his way home and he sees her. Uh, shrine prostitutes were common at the time. So Judah goes to Tamar and doesn't recognize her. Uh, thinks she's a prostitute, says, can I sleep with you? And uh, she says, what are you going to give me? And he goes, ah, I'll send a goat from the flock. And she goes, no, 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 no. What, what pledge can you give me now to guarantee that you'll send the goat? So he says, my staff and cord and seal. And she goes, okay, that'll be fine. They do the business. She gets pregnant. He leaves. She goes home, skedaddles home, puts on her widow's clothes, meets him at the door. It's all sweet and fine. He sends the goat back. The guy with the goat comes back to go, goes to the locals. Hey, where's the shrine prostitute? They go, shrine prostitute? We've never seen a shrine prostitute here. He goes, hmm, okay. Three months later, knock on Judah's door. It's the local villagers going, hey, Judah, we've got some bad news for you. Oh, what is it? Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's pregnant. She's been working as a prostitute. He goes, oh, that's terrible. Let's burn her to death. Awful woman. So Tamar happens to have kept his staff and his seal and his cord and sends them to him and says, uh, the man who owns these is the father of my child. And Judah goes, actually in the Hebrew it says, holy crap. (laughs) And then he says, she is more righteous than me. And and actually that's the only place in, in the Old Testament where that word righteous is referred to a woman. Isn't that interesting? So you have a woman who is uh, an ancestor of Jesus, who is uh, 
a childless widow who's a Canaanite, who's part of the people group that many of the Israelites massacred, who's betrayed, who's sinned against, who has to resort to great deception in order to get justice. Okay, so that's the first woman here. Uh, Who's the next one? Rahab. 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 What do we know about Rahab? Well, she didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. In the town of Jericho, uh, which was a key city that the invading Israelites needed to conquer, Joshua chapter 2. And so the Israelites send out two spies, and they say, go check out the land, go do some reconnaissance, we want to see what's going to happen there. So the two spies come into Jericho, and they go to uh, the house of the prostitute, Rahab. Now you might say, why would they do that? Well, just as a little aside, um, they didn't have networks of hotels in the ancient world, and the one home, the one house where you could always find a welcome in any village or town was what? the house of a prostitute. They would always take strange men in, or any men, really. So when you traveled, um, that was often a place where you'd stay, uh, whether you availed yourself of the services or not. That's why, by the way, in the New Testament, hospitality is seen as such an important thing for Christians to take other people in when they're traveling around the ancient world. The Christian community became a place of hospitality so you could stay with Christian brothers and sisters rather in the houses of prostitutes in the ancient world. Just an aside. Uh, Of course, we have hotels for that now, um, but we should... we don't always just, any Christian who lobs into Sydney, we don't have to open our homes to them unless they find us on Airbnb. Um, uh, so that's an aside. So Rahab, so they come to Rahab. She recognizes who they are. Word gets out to the authorities that two uh, Jewish spies are there. So they send some people to Rahab to say, knock, knock, knock. Uh, hello, yes, we've heard that, that two spies from, from Israel have come here. And uh, is that right? Rahab has heard these guys coming. She's hidden them upstairs on a roof under some agricultural produce. And she, she looks at these authorities, people in the eyes and says, no, they were here, but they've gone out through the gates. And I think they headed off that direction. So off the posse go to chase them off into entirely the wrong direction. And she goes back upstairs and talks to them and says, listen, um, we all know that you're going to come in and kill us. We know that God is on your side. When that happens, will you please have mercy on me and on my family? And the spies look at her and say, yes, we will, provided that you don't tell the authorities where we are and don't hand us in. And if you hang a scarlet cord out of the window that you're about to release us through, when we come in and destroy Jericho, we'll spare you and any who are in your house. And so that's what happens. And the town is destroyed. Rahab and her family are spared. And she goes on to, to become regarded as one of the great heroes of Jewish faith. She's regarded as beautiful. The, the, the rabbis say she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's fertile. She's, she's one of the mothers of the Jewish nation. And uh, she was a brave, faith-filled sex worker. <laughs> And uh, she's then regarded, she's, she pops up in the New Testament in Hebrews and in James as, uh, as a great example of faith in God. So, second woman. Third woman. Who's the next one? Ah, we all know Ruth, maybe. There's a whole, she has a whole book named after her. Go and read it. It's a great story. Uh, Ruth is... Um, a Moabite, a Moabitess, 
another pagan woman. She is childless. She is widowed uh, and she is stateless and she's on the verge of starving to death. So uh, in the interest of time, read the story. It's an amazing story. But she is brought by her mother-in-law from Moab back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, to come and, uh, and live on the absolute margins of society. A foreign pagan woman who's a widow, who's childless, no social security. She's living entirely on the mercy of others, gleaning grain. So the, the Jewish uh, law had said to the, the landowners, listen, um, always make sure you leave a little bit of grain on the field so the poor people can come and collect the grain and not starve to death. That's how she's living. And she's a single She's a stateless foreigner. She's extraordinarily vulnerable. I mean, women in her situation today have the highest rate of gender-based violence and murder of any, uh, of any women in the world. If you're, if you're stateless, if you have no protection from your clan or your people, and you are desperately poor, you're, 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 you're on the brink of starvation continually, uh, you're utterly vulnerable in the fields, in these agricultural situations, even today. That was her. <laughs> And then God provided for her a relative called Boaz. Uh, and she went into the threshing floor one night. They were sleeping there and she uncovered his feet one night and slipped in under his blankets. And uncovering one's feet is another metaphor, which I'll leave you to go and Google and research. Um, but they, they got together and Boaz functioned for her as a goel, which is a kinsman redeemer. It's a Hebrew word. And in the Hebrew law, uh, you had the situation where if, if Jewish people got into extraordinarily difficult situations, say, for example, you went bankrupt, uh, you got into great debt with somebody, you could sell yourself into bonded labor or slavery and work your way out of slavery. Uh, and and the, uh, you could either work your way out or a relative of yours could buy you out, could rescue you at the cost of his own money, purchase you, pay off your debt, and bring you out of that situation of hardship. That's what Boaz does. He functions as her kinsman redeemer, her relative, who at great cost to himself brings her out of suffering out of statelessness, out of vulnerability and poverty, and says, you Moabite woman, I will bring you into my family and you will be my wife. And then the fourth woman is who? Uriah's wife, also known as Bathsheba. You might have heard of her. Now, oh, she's an interesting one, eh? Um, when you read her story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you know what? She never says anything. But here's how I've often heard the story told, and you might have heard it told as well, like this. So it's, um, it's the fighting season, and David's, David sent off his men to go fight, and he's chilling out, uh, perfectly innocent, reading the Torah scrolls, paragon of virtue. And he happens to look up, and there, down below him, is this incredibly gorgeous, beautiful woman. And this is Bathsheba. And the way it's sometimes told is Bathsheba knew that David would be up there. And Bathsheba knew she was very beautiful. So Bathsheba plays the seductress. And she says, hmm, when shall I take my bath? Why don't I have a bath in the middle of the day when I know the king will see me? And so she seduces him and uses her feminine sexual wiles to gain access to the king. And then she has a child from the king and she becomes the queen. And it's all wonderful. Now that's one way it's told. It's actually nothing in the text to support that. Here's an, 
I actually don't think it's right. Here's another way. It's not, I think, a way that is more faithful to the text goes something like this. Bathsheba's husband uh, is a Hittite, and he's fighting for David, so she's probably a Hittite. So she's an outsider and a pagan, and she's all alone, and she's vulnerable because her husband is away fighting, and she is taking a bath. And the king, who is lazy because he doesn't want to go out and fight, possibly scared, entirely self-indulgent, is up there on his balcony checking out the chicks in Jer- downtown Jerusalem, and he sees her, and he's, he's a spoiled little king who's always used to getting whatever he wants, and he looks at her, and she He's really hot, and so he says to one of his guys, I want her, and the king always gets what he wants, so he sends one of his servants off, brings her back, and has sex with her, and she's pregnant. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think she was able to give her consent in that relationship? What was the power dynamic like? What do we call it when a woman can't give consent to sex? Rape. So at the very best, it was semi-consensual, which is another way of saying rape. The king gets what he wants. She gets pregnant. He murders her husband, marries her. She miscarries. Then she has another child, becomes Solomon, and becomes an ancestor of Jesus. She's an outsider. She's a Hittite. She gets raped. Her husband's murdered by her rapist who marries her. And she goes on to uh, play a key role in the court of David, securing the succession of her son Solomon to the throne. Uh, And so here we have four women woven into this story of, uh, of the birth of Jesus. And you have to say to yourself, why? Why did the writer of Matthew put these four women in? Like, Let's think about this. I mean, it's really, really important to think about this. And, and, and the way to, to show you why, how radical it is is by thinking about the, there are four things these four women have in common, right? This is very complicated. You've got to follow along. What's the first thing they have in common? They're all women. Thank you, Richard. It's wonderful when people are following along. They're all women and so perceptive as well. Go for the easy answers. That's right. Get it out there. All right. They're all women. Now, why is that so important? Well, women were low status. And if you're going to set up, if you're going to set up Jesus as this great hero to save the world, typically in the ancient world, when you wrote these genealogies, you'd put all the great heroes of faith in there. They're all women and they're woven into the genealogy of Jesus because I think the really important thing to say is that God is not, what? Sexist. We can't say that enough in our culture because don't we live in a world where often religion and Christianity and the Bible are seen as patriarchal? as instruments that oppress women. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, so many people think we'd all be better off, and women in particular would be better off if we got rid of religion. And listen, I I have great sympathy with that view. Christianity and the text of Scripture has been used to do enormous damage to women, for sure. But I think, I think that's a misreading of Scripture. And the point I've been trying to make right through the series, and I think that the point we need to make, actually, when you read the Bible, 
you find this strand of incredible grace and inclusion and welcome of women woven in right from the get-go. Genesis 1 and 2, we started with saying the, the, the idea that is fundamental to Christianity's understanding of women and men is that we're equal and that we're made for a certain mutuality of doing life together. And then Genesis 3, the fall says this all goes pear-shaped and, and then then God's redemption, God's healing of humanity has to be worked out in this patriarchal, screwed-up ancient Near Eastern culture. And within that patriarchal construct, we see God starting to reverse that and heal that and change that. And all the way through, God is making this point, men and women are equal, women are of great value, I'm not sexist. And we see that finally coming to bear in Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see made perfect how women and men can be included and treated and loved and supported and affirmed and empowered and equipped and welcomed into his family. So they're all women. God is not sexist. What's the second point? They're all what? They're all foreigners. Yeah, well, let's call them pagans because that's the sort of, they're all pagan foreigners. So that means God is not what? Racist. Or culturist. God isn't racist. This is radical, right? There is this common thing built into all of us to divide the world into them and us. And we divide the world into them and us based on, um, on skin color, on culture, on language. Um, and it's very powerful. We're mobilized to do that almost instantly. Um, yeah, gosh. They've done studies where, uh, in classrooms where they would, uh, in the U.S., a famous study to show how quickly we're mobilized into the them and us dynamic, where they took a bunch of kids and they were uh, in this study, a bunch had blue eyes, a bunch had brown eyes, and, uh, and the, the teacher arbitrarily said, now all blue-eyed children will receive these extra privileges. Before they'd said that, guess what happened? Brown-eyed and blue-eyed made no difference at all. The kids just got along. Suddenly, the difference was highlighted and privilege was assigned to one group. And within about five minutes, you had this formation of a them and us dynamic amongst these otherwise innocent kids. Like that thing that's deep inside of us is mobilized very, very quickly. That gets mobilized in tribal groups and then you add religion onto it. And what happens is then, in, this, in the ancient world, every little tribal group had their own god. So gods were tribal deities, so I'd pray to my God, you'd pray to your God, then we'd go into battle and we'd fight each other. And now, if I won, it's because my God was stronger than your God. Christianity says, no, no, there's only one God. <laughs> Radical monotheism. And this God is not a racist. Uh, it would have been easy for Jewish people to think that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the God of Israel alone. But we know that's not the case because we know that before God chose Israel, he actually was the creator of the whole world. And we see this affirmed at the start of Matthew's gospel that, that the, the very savior or messiah of Israel has woven into his identity these pagan foreign women to remind all the readers, listen, the heart of God is a heart for all people, which is wonderful. Now, why is that so important? Hey, listen, our job as a church is to, is to renew this city. 
to, to make this city a better place where shalom, where peace reigns. And part of that renewal is to say to the world, we have in Jesus Christ the means by which people of vastly different and sometimes even warring ethnicities and cultures and demographic groups and tribes can come together and become one in Jesus The church is meant to be, in God's plan, the most radically inclusive of all voluntary associations in any city. And by our radical inclusivity, we're to bring healing by pointing out to people, this is how we're meant to get along. Now, that's not easy. We all want, you know, God, one writer puts it this way, he says, God made us in his image, and then we all return the compliment. <laughs> so it's very easy for us to start to think, though actually when I, when I look at the demographic complexion here, it's changed, right? But it's really easy when I look around, around here, I start, it's easy for us to think God is really like a, a white Protestant Anglican professional. He's, he's at least got one graduate degree, Uh, he's probably in business, he's probably making a bunch of money, Uh, and he's just like us, right? Articulate and powerful in our, but white. I I grew up in South Africa, I always used to joke, you know, the the worst, (laughs) the Afrikaans person's worst fear is they'd get to heaven and discover that Jesus was a black guy, which um, I used to say that regularly, and you know, I was very popular amongst my Afrikaans friends and family. Um, We return, we make God into a little tribal deity. You go, no, no, God is so much bigger than that. I think God has a heart for all people everywhere. And, we want, and, and, you know, you don't have to be white or Anglican or religious or moral to be drawn into his family. All you've got to do is what? Just turn to Jesus and say, man, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. Guess how Matthew's gospel ends. Can anyone remember this? It starts with this genealogy. All these good Jewish people then woven into it, these four uh, foreign women you know how it ends? Um, what's, what are the last verses in Matthew's gospel? I'm sure you know it. This is how it ends. The last words in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says to his disciples are, go and make disciples of good Jewish people. Go and make disciples of rich white Protestants on the Balmain Peninsula. I mean, he wants that to happen, like, for sure. But he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So help everybody everywhere come to become a follower of Jesus. <laughs> I find that really, I mean, isn't this wonderful? Like, here in this little, I mean, look around. Um, I love the fact that, that some of the diversity of our city is starting to be expressed. But look around the fact, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a mongrel, ethnically and culturally. I always feel like I'm on the outsider here in Australia, in, in, in white Protestant Australia. I always feel like I'm just a little bit on the outside. I'm never, I never really belong. Grew up in Africa, I'm Jewish, kind of odd, you know? Crazy background, lots of violence, lots of hardship, culturally mixed up. I'm a migrant, but where's one place where I belong? I'm here. 
I'm an outsider everywhere else, and sometimes I feel like an outsider even in churches, but no, here we're family. Isn't that amazing? Uh, we're, we're, we're here by... Um, We're here by grace, not race. Isn't that amazing? And our world needs that. Our world needs that. So the next thing we see about these women, keeps them hard together, is this. Third thing that, ha- that they have in common is that they are all vulnerable and low status. And we often, and, and you know, why is that woven into the story of Jesus? Well, it's the way of the world to think that the only people who are important are people who are rich and powerful. And their wealth and their power gives them a certain invulnerability and status. And we think, they're the ones. If anyone's going to be used by God, they're the ones. God's kingdom reverses all of that. The story of God in the world is God actually using the vulnerable and the low status. I mean, think about it. Who was Jesus? He was the illegitimate son of a peasant in the backwater of a backwater, born in poverty, growing up in anonymity, uh, living a brief life of misunderstanding and persecution, and then dying, shattered, alone, and defeated. That's the heart of our God, Matthew 1 tells us. That's the heart of our God, the story of Jesus tells us. That's actually the heart of our God, the whole Bible tells us, who embraces and uses the vulnerable and the low status. And that's hard for me to remember, because while I'm an outsider, I'm a, I still am a privileged white male, with fairly high status, as many of us are here. And we can start to think that what matters is the external uh, status that we have. And one of the radical things about Christianity is how much concern and interest do you think God pays to external things like our status and our standing and our power in the eyes of the world? How impressed is God with the external externalities of our lives? How impressed? On a scale of zero, being not impressed at all, and 10, God going, whoa, Mark, you're so powerful, and everyone thinks you're so great, I must agree with him. Where do you th- how much interest do you think God pays to, to our externality? Zero to 10. Zero. It says, the, the Bible says, man looks at the outside, but God considers the heart. Oh, I love a God like that. It's the fourth thing they all have in common. Yeah, they're survivors. I'll put it another way. I love that. Though. That's a, yeah, they're all damaged goods. And that's a provocative phrase, and I'll put that in. But they're survivors. Why is that so important, man? Let me tell you. Um, God is in the business of redemption and restitution. And fresh starts. All of these women were victims of gender based violence. All of them. And in a culture that prized sexual purity 
and ethnic purity and relational wholeness, they, they were absolutely damaged beyond the pale, excluded by the violence and the sexual violence that had happened to them, excluded from God's plans and purpose according to most constructs of the day. And yet, these damaged women, these sex workers, these violated survivors are not just included at an arm's length, but are woven into the genealogy of our Savior. There can be no greater inclusion than that. Wow, that's good news. Why? Because I'm damaged goods. You're damaged goods. We're, We're all a mess, aren't we? Anyone who's, not da- anyone, who's never, anyone who's not damaged goods, anyone who's never been hurt, anyone who's never screwed up and messed up, just stick your hand up now. You know, come and take the pulpit. Tell us how you did it. You know? Come. Anyone. Anyone never messed up. Anyone not got lingering shame and guilt. Anyone not got within them that little feeling like, oh, geez, if the people around me really knew some of the stuff I'd done, some of the stuff I'd thought... They wouldn't want to be sitting next to me. The radical grace of God says, you know what? The script, the, the, the script in your head that says you're not good enough, that's a script straight from the pit of hell. That's not a script from God. <laughs> 25 years I've been doing this job, pastoring and leading and teaching. And I see so many of us held captive by these scripts in our heads that say my past, uh, my past determines my present and my future and I'm not good enough and I can't be used by God. Women, I see this all the time, often in the area of your sexuality. See, I've spoken over the years to women who've had abortions. You know, 20, 30 years later, just still racked with guilt and feeling like, oh, I just, how could God ever forgive me? How could God ever use me? How can I ever have a place and a voice in the Christian community when I've got this secret, this hidden shame and guilt? You go, no. No, God is a God whose radical grace in embraces and heals and redeems and restores, hey? It's men. Oh, men. I see a generation of young men addicted to pornography. And not so young men. It's everywhere. And it erodes our confidence spiritually and our sense of well-being, that sense of, well, how could God use me when I can't control my access to porn? And then you feel miserable about yourself and inadequate and unworthy. And so how do you medicate your feelings of misery and inadequacy and unworthiness? Well, you go for your next dopamine hit from your next bout of encounter with porn. And you say, no, the way to break that cycle is to say, no, God's radical grace includes all of us. Uh, Jesus does then say, you know, go go sin no more. And there's, there's healing and there's redemption. But God uses damaged goods. He uses us broken and messed up. One of, the, you know, one of the great tragedies of the church 
is we can project to the world that the church is only for people who've got their stuff together. And actually, when I look out, many of you have. It's a good thing. At one, I'm not, I, want, I don't want to diminish wise choices and having your stuff together. But the image we can portray is you can only belong here if you've actually got all your life together. That's, it's the same problem the fitness industry has. Have you ever thought about that? Often we can say, the gym is really a place for fit people unless you look really good in your athletic gear and you don't have a, you know, an, an ounce of you know, baby fat bulging over your Lululemon leggings or you, know, you don't have your beer gut hanging on the crossbar of the exercise bike while you work out. Uh, unless you look perfect and gorgeous and already fit, you have no place in this gym. Of course, who benefits the most from a gym? It's people who aren't fit yet. Who benefits the most from the church? Damaged, broken, screwed up, messed up people. Me. You. I, I think it's radical, isn't it? This is radical. Say that the doors of the church are open to anyone who just wants to come to Jesus. And not only just come to Jesus, but he'll use us. He'll use you wherever you are. He'll use, he wants to. Man, if he could weave in uh, damaged, broken, abused sex workers, prostitutes, deceivers into the genealogy of Jesus and use them to bring his son, the savior of the world, into the world... Holy moly, he can use me and he can use you. It's nothing that you've done in the past. There's no sin or shame or guilt that you are harboring in your heart that can exclude you from the plan and the purpose of God for your life. If only he'll let him come in and clean you and heal you and redeem you and restore you. Isn't that wonderful? I feel like I, I don't know. I just said, people, do you get that? I feel like I'm at the end of my rhetorical capacity to make the point. And I've been on the verge of tears for 15 minutes because for me, this is, this is the most central, this is it. Do you get it? Yeah, do we get it as a church? Imagine, imagine being part of a community that lived this out, hey? What life and joy, what healing and hope. Let's pray. Joel's just going to play some music. I want to give us some time and space to let God take up where my words have finished. And I want to give you a chance to respond. Lord God, we, we come this morning and we, we stand in the footprints of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. We stand broken, aware of shame and guilt and distance from you 
pray, Lord God, that you will, you will pour your Holy Spirit out on us now to bring healing and hope. You might want to just quietly, if you've never prayed something like this before, just, just pray a prayer after me. I'm going to pray something that goes like this. Uh, sorry, Jesus, for all my past, all my brokenness and sin. Thank you that you loved me and died for me, rose again to give me life. Come into my life and heal me now. I want to pray that prayer. I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I just, I just think some of us need to come and do this business with God. So I'm going to say a prayer like that out loud, just a phrase at a time. And if that's what you want to say to God, just this morning, allow your heart to cry out to Him. Jesus, I'm sorry for my past and my brokenness. Thank you that you died and rose again to give me complete freedom, healing, and forgiveness. Please, Jesus, come into my life afresh this morning. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please fill me with your grace and mercy. Please change me forever and for always.